Welcome to Endo Battery, where we are sharing our endometriosis journey and learning along the way. This podcast is in no way meant to diagnose or give medical advice, but a place where you can gain knowledge and information that can help you to not feel alone as well as become your best advocate. We want to learn with you and support you wherever you are in your journey. Thanks for joining us. I'm Shelby. And I'm Alana, and we're Endo Battery, charging our life when Endo drains us. Welcome back to Indo Battery. Today, I have the privilege of being joined by Libby Hinesley, and she is the, a doctor of physical therapy and a certified yoga therapist. She is a specialist in treating people with hypermobility, chronic pain, and she is also a specialist at treating those with yoga injuries. So Libby, thank you so much for joining us today, and I'm just really excited. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. This is an interesting thing for for a lot of us in the endometriosis world, because I don't know if you have seen the correlation in endometriosis, EDS, and hypermobility. Can you touch a little bit about what hypermobility and EDS is? Yep. So that's a really big question, but I'll do my best to make it make sense. And to start out with, I have heard, you know, especially the last few years, a lot of anecdotal correlations between endometriosis and hypermobility syndromes. I have been seeing that and I've been wondering, Mm -hmm. what is that about? So um, I definitely share your interest in that. (laughs) Yes. Let's talk about hypermobility. Hypermobility is a word that just means someone has more than normal or more than typical range of motion in a joint. And generalized hypermobility is when they have more range of motion in a lot of their joints, technically five or more. It's not always symptomatic. And some estimates point to between 20 and 30% of the overall population has joint hypermobility. That's not to say they're all going to have symptoms. Hmm. So when we have symptomatic hypermobility, that's when we call it a hypermobility syndrome. And there are a number of genetic connective tissue disorders that feature hypermobility and are the places where we're more likely to see symptoms. And these symptoms, what's really tricky about it is they can appear across many systems of the body, not just musculoskeletal issues. You know, a lot of people think, oh, joint hypermobility, we're going to see dislocations and subluxations. And Mm -hmm. yes, we do see that, but there's so much more to it. And a lot of people haven't connected those dots to say their GI issues, their pelvic health issues, their mental health issues, their immune system issues, their autonomic dysfunction, all kinds of different things. So EDS, I'll explain a little bit what that is. That stands for Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And so the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes are a group of 13 subtypes. All right. And they are a set of genetic connective tissue disorders that are all characterized by hypermobility, impaired healing, like Mm -hmm. wound healing and excessive skin hyperextensibility. Those are kind of like the hallmarks of all EDS. The thing is, most of those 13 types are very rare. They're Mm -hmm. rare or they're ultra rare. And there's one type, which is confusingly called the hypermobile type. It's confusing because they're all potentially hypermobile, (laughs) but the hypermobile type or type three 
is the one that accounts for the vast majority of all cases. So 90% or more of all cases of EDS are thought to be this hypermobile type. And unfortunately, it's also the one that is least well understood. In other words, you know, where a lot of the other ones have like a blood test. If my doctor were to suspect I had, say, vascular EDS, Mm -hmm. I'd go for some genetic testing and they could see whether I have that genetic mutation. That does not exist yet for hypermobile type. Interesting. Yeah, it is. And it makes it really hard to get a diagnosis because right now it is diagnosed via a set of clinical criteria. And so for a physician, any physician could make the diagnosis, but they have to be familiar with it and they have to know about this checklist and be able to apply it and, and also be able to rule out any other connective tissue disorder that might present similarly, such as some other type of EDS or maybe a a different, like an autoimmune condition or something like that, you know? And so that's hypermobile EDS. Now, and I, and it's again, by far the most common form of EDS, but let's say someone has symptomatic hypermobility, meaning they've got, maybe they've got joint pain, myofascial pain. They've got all the other cluster of multi-system mm-hmm. but they don't check off all those boxes on that set of criteria for hypermobile EDS. That's mm-hmm. a lot of people who don't meet the criteria. They don't get right. to have that diagnosis. And what they are left with is a different sort of sister diagnosis called hypermobility spectrum disorder. And that is a bigger umbrella term that basically means you have symptomatic hypermobility and you don't qualify for the the HEDS diagnosis, Mm -hmm. which by the way, just a side note to confuse things a little bit further, those criteria for HEDS they're actually under revision. Really? So yeah. So when we talk about these conditions, I think it's important for listeners to really understand this is a totally moving target right now. It's very much in evolution. These conditions aren't really well understood by anyone yet, but I think we're on the cusp of, of learning a whole lot more. And it's also important to know that Let's say someone has HSD, hypermobility spectrum disorder, in other words, symptomatic hypermobility, but they don't have EDS currently. That doesn't mean they have less severe symptoms. It's important to know that that is not a lesser diagnosis. Doesn't mean that the person with EDS is like way more impacted. They really clinically present in exactly the same way. And they are treated in exactly the same way. And a lot of people who work in this realm consider HEDS and HSD as sort of the same thing. They're going to group them together in a big pile Mm -hmm. as the most common forms of symptomatic hypermobility. And there's an interesting study that was published, I believe, in 2019 in the country of Wales, Hmm. not whales that swim in the ocean. But the country, People are like, oh my God, whales are hypermobile too. Well, I mean, maybe they <laughs> No, listen, if you have car if you have collagen, you could be hypermobile. Exactly. So, but so this was an interesting study that looked at the whole population of whales, and they were looking at what is the prevalence of this bigger umbrella, HSD mm-hmm. and HEDS combined. What is the combined prevalence of of those? that is actually diagnosed in the population. And what they found that it was one in 500 people. And that is not rare. 
Right. Like that puts us way outside of the realm of what we would consider a rare condition. The tricky thing too, is that it's very hard to get our heads around prevalence because we know that these are massively underdiagnosed conditions. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that for me has been forever. I mean, I think a lot of us think, okay, we are super bendy and we're super excited about that. Look at how I can bend this. I can bend that. Well, maybe that's not necessarily a great thing. <laughs> right. It might be, you know, it might be really useful if you're a circus artist and if, right. if you're a dancer, like that is a superpower, but you have to take care of it too, because it's right. going to place you at increased risk of injury. And more importantly, it might be linked to some other challenges that you have that you would never think, you know, were connected. And once people find that all of their multiple kind of weird stuff that they're dealing with in their life is actually one big thing. Mm. It's really freeing for a lot of people because they can finally, things make sense. Finally, they can see it as an integrated situation and they understand now why maybe they've always felt a little different from their peers, even though they're like the healthiest people they know, they're Mm -hmm. nonetheless struggling with all these bizarre things that Doctors really don't understand. They don't make sense and that type of thing. So I'm a big advocate for diagnosis because of that. You know, but again, I think that the prevalence of the HSD, HEDS, which I grouped together in my mind as well, I think it's far, far greater than, than we realize. And yeah. once we do ever get a handle on that, I think we'll be really surprised. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say that it, it kind of, once we understand that and we get a diagnosis, it helps us understand other avenues of which we're struggling in. And I think it was interesting that there's also a cognitive role in this as well. When you're talking about connective tissues and when you're talking about either EDS or hypermobility, can you explain a little bit of that to us? Sure. So there is some really interesting research that draws a strong, a strong correlation between hypermobility and a variety of neurodevelopmental differences, especially ADHD and autism spectrum. Mm. And the research shows that it goes in both directions. Like if you have ASD or ADHD, you are far more likely to be hypermobile. Mm. And if you are hypermobile, you are far more likely to have those other, you know, co-occurring conditions, Tourette syndrome as well, OCD as well. Mm. But I mean, big time more likely, not just a little more likely. Interesting. And, yeah. And the the more hypermobile you are, the more likely you are. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, the mechanism, like, why is that? Hard to say, you know? Right. Um, I, what I have gathered from my research in this is that it may have to do with some differences in brain anatomy that mm-hmm. have also been found in people with hypermobility. And I can describe a couple of those. Yeah. The A couple of big ones are people with hypermobility tend to have a larger amygdala in their brain. So the amygdala being like, part of our whole apparatus of threat detection and fear response and triggering a sympathetic response to danger, you know, it's our big threat detector and it's larger in bendy people, but it's not only larger, it's also more reactive. So when presented Mm -hmm. with, you know, stimuli, it it goes nuts more than others. (laughs) So 
Mind is blown right now. I feel like you are just speaking about me. I actually feel like you're... (laughs) This is all making more sense, which is kind of proving the point of like understanding this really helps us identify things within ourselves that maybe we've struggled with our entire lives. And it doesn't necessarily mean just hypermobility. It means, okay, a lot of this is also connecting to if you have this, there's a high probability that maybe there's endo involved, there's other things. So this is not just a simplistic thing. It's not, you're just, you're not just bendy. It's so complex. And I, I, I like to use the metaphor of, or analogy of a tangled ball of yarn mm-hmm. and it's all tangled up and there are all these pieces to it. And our medical model likes to try to separate the pieces out. Like for this piece, you're going to go see the GI doc, this piece, you can go see mental health counselor, whatever, you know, da, 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 psychiatrist. The problem is that they only make sense when they're tangled up together <laughs> because they are, they're actually just part of each other. It's right. not easy to separate these. So it's, it's just sort of mind boggling. But the other thing is when people understand some of this, like the amygdala thing, like this yeah. hypervigilance that we're, I could expect a bendy person to just be running on high vigilance, high threat detection at baseline, at baseline. And that mm. sympathetic o- over arousal also looks like muscle tension and pain. You know what I mean? They're all wrapped up <laughs> together. And once we understand that maybe a different brain, we have a different physiology, we can go ahead and sort of de-psychologize it a little bit, depathologize it and not be so, not have so much shame around it. I think that's really helpful for people because a lot of people I've talked to, and this was true for myself for a long time, you know, they've been digging and digging for decades sometimes to try to figure out what on earth must have happened to me to make my nervous system like this. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, so like in the absence of say big life trauma, but let's say someone does have big life trauma. Well, it's just going to snowball. This is on top of an already hypervigilant nervous system. It's, we're going to have an over response. So we also know that bendy people are more prone to like PTSD, um, you know, in, in response to just life events. They're going to have an, an overblown response. And so it's helpful for us to learn about that. And then we can learn about some awarenesses, some skills to help ourselves regulate, to be better regulated, right. just knowing that that's an area that we're going to potentially be challenged with. Mm-hmm. Right. And th- so for any hypermobility syndrome and EDS, it's you can't necessarily cure it. You can manage it though, correct? That's right. Yep. Yep. You know, there's a role to be played by medical management there, you know, in pain management, certainly to address some GI issues and mm-hmm. some immune system issues. There's some interesting you know, novel approaches to some medications for some of these pieces. But in general, it's about uh, learning how to take care of this special body, this very mm-hmm. unique body that does have, I mean, the, the level of sensitivity in the bendy body is a superpower. Mm -hmm. It truly is right. And the ability to connect with others suffering and that empathetic stuff, like there's some really good stuff in here, but we have to take care of it in some special ways in order to, you know, live our best life, you know, as well as we can. But I want to go back actually a second to what is that correlation between that sort of the neurodevelopmental differences. and, And, and so I was talking about some differences in brain anatomy and, and I mentioned the amygdala part. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's the link, but but it does point to a heightened sensitivity. Mm-hmm. 
And I know that a lot of Bindi people, whether they have, you know, autism spectrum disorder or not, they are likely to be more sensitive to various sensory inputs Mm -hmm. and need to learn to manage that as well. Yes, that is so intriguing. I was talking to a friend of mine about this specifically who has ADHD and is probably on the spectrum for autism. And she said, it is interesting because our pain responses are so different. When we're talking Mm -hmm. about endometriosis, hypermobility, joint stability, things either we don't have that input where it's like, we can go hours without going to the bathroom or we could go, you know, hours without eating and we're not paying attention to our body or it's super heightened in these yeah. situations. And I feel like there's an element of that, of recognizing our pain level when it comes to hypermobility. And what I mean by that is for me personally, I'm hypermobile. I'm ADHD. Like all of this, is what you're telling me, I'm like, oh gosh, this is like, okay, I'm, I, I feel seen in this because this is, I've always felt a little bit spastic, if you will, or have that fear response or whatever. But when it came to pain, I'm either really sensitive to that touch or that response, or I completely ignore it. I was going to PT yesterday and my upper traps, she's like needling me. And she's like, whoa, that was a lot. And I'm like, but I didn't feel anything. She goes, that was like a brick. <laughs> I do think yeah. that it's important understanding that element of it because it kind of puts those pieces in place and understanding your body even more and knowing how we can manage these symptoms. Another thing I wanted to say about that sensory, like it's either overwhelming or we ignore it. That mm-hmm. is often the case, exactly what how you described it. It's a great way of describing it. What we know about bendy people, and this is also a, potentially a link for neurodevelopmental piece, and it's mm-hmm. also a link to the disordered eating piece, which is Mm. highly, highly correlated with hypermobility. So anorexia in particular, some studies put that at like a 70% overlap. Like if you were to gather up people who have an anorexia diagnosis up to about 70% of them um, have hypermobility as well. Same with anxiety and panic disorders. So there's this huge correlations there. And one of the things that people point to is the fact that bendy people have heightened interoceptive sensitivity, meaning their internal physiological cues are overwhelming. They're turned up. The volume is really high and it's uncomfortable in here. We, you know, the feeling of our own heartbeat, you know, the need to urinate, the sense of hunger, pain, all the things going on is loud. And a lot of people I think do develop an ability to ignore it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, because it can be so overwhelming and difficult to interpret, you know, difficult to understand those signals. What do they mean? Mm -hmm. And especially when it comes to pain, we know this is a person who's going to be more sensitive. Does it make their pain less real? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. But it makes it more complicated. And it means that we're going to have a part of our sort of healing recovery management is going to need to be around understanding the sensitivity of this unique nervous system Mm -hmm. and understanding how to interpret the information from the body in a more accurate way. Oh, it's so intriguing. I, my mind is just blown right now. I am, I'm sitting here just 
eating this. This is seriously what we have been talking about so much. And this is so prevalent with a lot of the people I know that have endometriosis. We were sitting there having a conversation about this. And a lot of these things kind of check off as to what we had been experiencing. So not to say that it's invalidating the fact that there's endometriosis. We're, I'm not getting to that. I, but what I'm saying is there's a lot of other correlations involved when we're talking about chronic illness, chronic disease, chronic pain, and the ability to turn those receptors off a little bit in the sense that we become overstimulated that it just shuts down. With me specifically, with the ADHD brain, when I'm overwhelmed, I just shut down completely. I don't like to feel. I don't like to to accomplish things. I have a harder time focusing, things like that. And so I think that also translates to our bodies and how we heal. When we're looking at, for instance, movement, we know that we're bendy. We know we have all these other underlying things. How do we turn on our brain to think my joints need support and help? This is too far. This is not far enough. How do we kind of manage and marry those two thought processes? Well, we have to practice. It's like a trial and error situation when it comes to movement, exercise. What is the modality that's going to be supportive of a person with hypermobility syndrome is very person specific, Mm -hmm. but it's the central thing is, are we in a situation where we feel safe and we feel we have agency over our own body and we're the ones in charge of making the decisions? You know, that's critical. That's the, if we don't have that, we're not going to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. And we have to honor the pace that the nervous system needs to move, you know, with it's, right. we can't, we can't rush our progress or we, it will backfire. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when we're exercising, we don't know in the moment that we're overdoing it because we don't get that information until later, right. or the next day, or the next day after that, or, you know, it could be 72 hours. But so we have to keep a journal. That's what I recommend people do mm. and record your recovery for a couple of days after an exercise session and study it. You got to study your response and then make adjustments accordingly. So did I overdo it? Uh, okay, I'm going to do less next time. And then I'm going to study that. What's my baseline? And sometimes it takes weeks and weeks to even get to a place where you know where you're even starting, because I don't ever want to risk overdoing it. Less is more. I'm always going to start with less than I think I can do. And then I'm going to study it. And then I'm going to progress if my body tells me that we tolerated that. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, eventually I'll find that place of challenge that maybe I get a little sore, a little fatigue, but it's manageable. It's a kind of normal response to exercise, mm-hmm. which bendy people often don't have. They have huge fatigue and global muscle soreness. It's not normal. Yeah. So we have to progress very, very slowly and we have to slow down while we exercise. Mm-hmm. That's the key to knowing where we are. You know, I mentioned the brain anatomy stuff, but I didn't say, I didn't mention the other piece, which is our somatosensory cortex is actually smaller. You know, our brain mapping real estate is smaller at baseline and a bendy body. So we, not only that, but our floppy connective tissue that's full of mechanoreceptors and is sensing position and tension and compression. It doesn't get as easily stimulated because it's so floppy. It doesn't get pulled on until we're way out at end range and then it's stimulated. And now we feel something. So we have to, for a variety of reasons, slow down and start to really study how it feels to move 
through our range of motion and, and don't go so far and, and learn about how that feels because we're used to not feeling anything until we get way, way out to end range and we don't need to be there. Mm-hmm. We've gone past where it's reasonable, but we just didn't really feel much because maybe we were moving too fast. Mm. That's often momentum is like not our friend. We want motor right. control. We want smaller ranges, steady movement, proprioceptive practice. Can you stop at 75%? Can you stop at 50%? Can you stop at 25%? Really working with getting to know this, these mid ranges where we know we need to build motor control first anyway, before we bring that control with us into bigger ranges. Is that harder for people that have compensated for so long? So they, you know, a lot of people with endo, we end up hunched and we end up compensating to protect ourselves. Is that even more so of an issue of overdoing it and not listening to that response because we're so busy protecting? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, you know, the step one within anyone, usually with chronic pain, we're covered up with muscle tension. We know hypermobile people tend to be covered up with muscle tension. We've Mm -hmm. got muscles contracting chronically in the background as a baseline compensation for all this lack of passive stability from our connective tissue because our collagen is different. It's not as robust. Mm -hmm. It's less like a steel cable. It allows more to happen. So our muscles are always compensating. Add to that something like endo and you've got a bigger response of guarding, protecting, bracing. So we have to Step one, feel safe enough to let the body start to relax Mm. so that we have access to using the proper muscles for these different tasks. Otherwise, who knows what's going on? You know, yeah. And bendy people already are master compensators. They can get stuff done in crazy ways. It'll look normal on the outside, but what that brain is taught, what muscles the brain is talking to is kind of shocking. Yeah. not <laughs> the patterns are all get all mixed up. And it's kind of an amazing superpower that bendy people have figured out so many creative ways to compensate for yes. things. Yes. It's interesting you say that though, because I was again, talking to my physical therapist yesterday, we had a powwow because we really got into a lot of this, but we were talking about how I didn't, I had to change my mindset when I started working out and I started working out with a trainer who was really aware of joint stability. So mm-hmm. he has always been like, you are so mobile. He goes, but I don't want you to be that mobile. I want you to have some st- some joint stability in there. And what I realized when I started working on my joint stability and working on getting those in ranges nice and slow, making sure that I'm not compensating, things like that, my muscle pattern changed. So I Mm -hmm. didn't, I wasn't as bulky in maybe my upper traps or I wasn't as focused on just strengthening my core. I was focused on strengthening everything around my joints, strengthening all the muscles that have been atrophied for so long that I just didn't use because I compensated by using other muscles. And so I think that it's interesting that when you're talking about going slow and feeling, you know, that in range and really looking into that, it is a mental process to really think it through, not muscle by muscle, but whole body joint stability. This blows my mind. I don't know. It was just something that I recognized yesterday. And what's cool is that, you know, slow, mindful movement is what helps our brain's body maps get clarified and get bigger. You know, it's a plastic area. And as we practice studying our body and feeling awareness of different parts, 
that we're helping our brain do a better job of mapping what's happening down here. Movement is so powerful. It's yeah. it's magic. It's just that we have to find the right modality that we enjoy, that we want to do, and also that feels safe. And also they're at the right dose and frequency for mm -hmm. what our energy can accommodate right now and what our recovery can accommodate. Right. And, you know, the, the issues with exercise recovery uh, often have to do with dysautonomia and also mm. mast cell activation syndrome, which I want to talk about because my curiosity is about the relationship between mast cell activation syndrome and endometriosis. Oh, yes. No, but you know, from what little bit that I'm starting to gather, that may be something to help us understand this correlation. So there's a trifecta that people yes. like to talk about with hypermode, like HSD, HEDS, the trifecta. And that is bendy, itchy, and dizzy. Shorthand, bendy, itchy, and dizzy. The bendiness is what we are talking about, this, the body stuff, the mm -hmm. joint stuff. Itchy is mast cell issues and histamine issues. So the mast cell is an immune cell, lives in connective tissue and along the gut lining, and it releases histamine and other inflammatory mediators in response to like allergens. And so a lot of people with these conditions get itchy, rashy, hivey, sometimes in response to exercise and have a lot of GI issues that are associated with mast cell activation, brain fog, fatigue, all kinds of things can be correlated with that. It's really hard to diagnose because you kind of have to get a baseline of some blood markers that are indirect markers because the, the mast cells are in the tissue, not really, not the bloodstream, mm -hmm. but you have, then have to get it, you have to catch it right in the middle of a flare up. And that's really hard mm -hmm. to do, you know, mm -hmm. and yeah. there's some other clinical criteria that are sometimes used to diagnose that, but it's just know that it's hard. It's hard to figure out mast cell issues. Yeah. It's a common challenge, but that that's where my mind goes in trying to understand the propensity for the bendy body to go into an over inflammatory response, which is essentially what this histamine yes. response is. And how might that link us to understanding the endometriosis? Again, this is something that I'm just like starting to learn about. So I don't know, but I'm curious about that. Yeah. And the other piece is the dizzy piece. Okay. So that's bendy, itchy, and dizzy. The dizzy is dysautonomia, which is just a fancy way of saying your autonomic nervous system is having a hard time regulating heart rate and blood pressure. And what that often looks like for bendy people is POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is where your heart rate goes way up when you stand up. Part of what drives that for a lot of people is mechanical. It can be caused by some neurogenic issues too, but for the vast majority, I think of the bendy population, what happens, well, our vessels are made of collagen that's right. floppy and saggy. And so we stand up, we have this blood pooling in the lower body and our saggy vessels, and they're not maintaining adequate pressure. And so we're not getting perfusion to our brain. That's important. And so to compensate what, what happens in our nervous system, oh, more sympathetic arousal happens. Right. And our heart rate rate has to go really fast, just doing our best to get some blood up to our noggin. Okay. Mm -hmm. So POTS brings with it a lot of fatigue as well. Brain fog, heart palpitations, exercise intolerance, you know, fat windedness mm. and, and the impasse, the mast cell activation syndrome and the POTS feed each other because let's say you've got a mast cell overactivation issue 
and your mast cells are just freaking out for no good reason. And they're releasing all this histamine when they shouldn't be, then that histamine also is going to increase your vessel permeability. So now we have even more leakiness of our vessels, more difficulty keeping fluid where it's supposed to be pressure. So we're having low volume issues exacerbated by our MCAS. So they can, they can be this vicious cycle. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my goodness. This is a lot of really valuable information that. Yeah, I know it's a lot. I hope it makes sense. I tend to just say a lot of words and, and hope that it, is making sense to people. No, I think it really does. I think a lot of people with endometriosis, this is tends to be a focus of ours is the autoimmune response mm-hmm. to things because we know that when our system is at a heightened awareness of everything or we're going through a flare, it's because something has triggered that and then triggers maybe our endometriosis or and who knows if what stage it does it. But when a flare happens, a lot of this rings true for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. This is, I'm, I'm over here taking a lot of notes is what I'm doing right now. <laughs> uh, well, this is a great example of that tangled ball of yarn scenario, you know, yes. that we really can't separate these out so easily. They're, they're connected. Like the collagen that makes me bendy is also the collagen that makes my vessels saggy that leads yes. to this hemodynamic challenge with blood pressure, heart rate, and all of that. It's like all connected. And we know that just that resting baseline sympathetic arousal is always going to put us at higher risk for pain syndromes, mm-hmm. right? And anytime we have increased stress, psychological stress, emotional stress, et cetera, we can just plan on all of that getting worse, mm-hmm. all of it. It's pro-inflammatory to to have that level of stress. Right, right. Are you seeing a correlation with this? And, the, and you talked about slower healing. And this mm-hmm. is a really big one for those of us with endometriosis. When we heal from, say, surgeries. Surgeries, mm-hmm. when we're contemplating surgeries and you have, you're checking the box for hypermobility, you're checking the box for all of the autoimmune things that are going on. Is there more of a risk with healing from surgeries, injuries, and things like that with all of these things that we've talked about? Definitely. Yep. We know that anyone with kind of the EDS, the collagen impairments that come along with genetic connective tissue disorders, such as these, impair our tissue healing. A lot of people do have issues with prolonged healing after surgery or a higher risk of complications and things like that. We also know there's some issues with anesthesia with the bendy person. Mm. And, you know, if I were going in for a major surgery, I would really want to talk to the anesthesiologist about hoping that they have some awareness about the fact that it's been shown that uh, anesthesia isn't as effective on the bendy person. (laughs) It can, they can need like a little bit more. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, (laughs) You'll have to go do that research. And I know I've seen specific research on local anesthesia, but I've also heard many others talk about, no, that's also the case for general anesthesia. So Mm. let's plant that seed for, you know, people who want to go down that rabbit hole a little bit, but it's certainly important if you're contemplating a big surgery and you suspect you might have HEDS or HSD. Yeah. That's really good because I feel like a lot of us are surgical minded as well, Mm -hmm. because we want to get rid of this disease. And so Mm -hmm. understanding the risk, if you 
have HEDS or just in any way maybe think that you could, I think it's a very valuable tool to put in your tool belt to talk to your doctor and say, look, I think I have this. It could include this. Being very open and honest with that, but doesn't just stop at surgery. We have to talk about injury because this is a big part of that in healing. So you're talking about Mm -hmm. collagen, joint stability. Is that the reason why healing is so much slower. You know, that's not one of the areas that I have my head around as in a, in such a detailed way, but yes. Okay. I'll just, yes. Okay. We don't scar as well. We have atrophic scarring, which mm-hmm. is uh, scars tend to be flat and wide and mm-hmm. a little discolored and there's not as robust. Like I, I can hardly find, I have one scar from when I was a kid that kind of is a good example of this, but others have, they just disappear. I can't, I don't even have them anymore. They're just gone. But again, that's one of the three hallmarks of all of the EDS syndromes is impaired tissue um, healing, like tissue fragility, basically. Okay. Oh my goodness. Libby, there's just so much to unpack with that because I'm realizing so many things as you're speaking of things that I have walked through that I had no idea were connected. I just thought it was like one thing or the other. And now I'm like, okay, maybe this is all intertwined and I'm not even realizing it till now. Yeah. I think a lot of people have that experience. And I think a lot of people have these conditions. Again, you know, when we go back to our prevalence discussion earlier, I think when we really understand the prevalence of HEDS and HSD, this cluster Mm -hmm. of syndromes here, I think it's going to blow our minds. Yeah. You know, and it's so we're in this kind of weird zone where a lot of people are like, really? Could I have that? You know, mm-hmm. like, surely I can't blame all this on my hypermobility. And I'm like, well, yeah, you probably can't blame it all on your hypermobility, but all, at the same time, you might actually have it. I was right. the same way. You know, I was passing out in elementary school. Um, I've had symptoms my whole life. It's just that they really blew up after having kids. Mm. And it was shocking to me to finally realize that. I actually have hypermobile EDS. You know, I never would have thought that in a million years, having learned a tiny bit about it in Mm -hmm. PT school. And, but now everything makes sense. And I have a classic case of it, you know, per the geneticist who diagnosed me, but you get used to things as they are in your body and you not, you don't know if they're normal because you only have your own experience. Right. But probably been wondering for some decades, does it get this time? Like, is this normal? And you have no way of knowing until someone like, in my case, this geneticist finally sees you, validates you and says, actually, Mm -hmm. actually, no, this isn't normal. Mm -hmm. This is how we can explain this. You have a thing. Here's what it's called. Now you can go live your life. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) And, And stop wondering, you know, just go take care of it, learn what you can to manage your condition, gather up your support team that can help guide you in all these different realms and do your best to thrive given the differences in your body. Yeah. Do you have a harder time as a PT with patients with hypermobility and being able to get them in a corrective state? I mean, the body awareness is definitely lacking in a lot of them. So we have this proprioceptive deficit, definitely. I would say the biggest hurdle is mindset. Mm. It's really about getting out of the fear-based narrative about the body mm-hmm. and feeling empowered and feeling safe and empowered enough to go ahead and take steps towards challenging the body, like delivering the right dose of challenge to the body so that we can have some positive adaptations. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fear 
you know, when someone has gone to say dozens of doctors over their lifetime and every doctor says, I don't know, I don't have anything to offer you. I, there's nothing wrong with you, but just be really careful. You know, it's, right. it's sort of like comes out with like, I just have to be really careful. And there's a fear narrative about it. And people aren't trusting their body and they're afraid they're going to hurt something because they don't understand mm -hmm. their pain. Once they understand it, they're less afraid of it. And they can start to know that, hey, it's actually through appropriate challenge and loading that this body and actual tissues are going to make positive adaptations and they're actually going to get stronger. Yeah. But I can't overdo it, but I also can't underdo it. And I need guidance to find out what is that spot, right? And that right. goes back to our pacing, our very graded exposure, very slow progression, studying our response all along the way so that we maximize our recovery, but we also are working towards increasing the challenge to our tissues so that they can adapt. Yeah. They will not adapt without that level of challenge. We have to do some hard things, right. but we have to do it in a smart way. Right. Which also and leads to that movement of yoga. How do we pair and, and correct those things and build that joint stability, if you will? How do we do that? And what are some ways that we see the most benefit? Well, I mean, I think in a yoga, yoga has a great role to play, I think, in managing these conditions if practiced wisely. And that's what my right. book is really about because of its potential impact on nervous system regulation and also body awareness. Right. Uh, motor control and proprioception, all these things that we really need. So, but we can't be flinging ourselves around the yoga mat. We have to be really slow and mindful mm -hmm. and paying attention and using asana in an intentional way. But I a hundred percent of the time recommend resistance training to yeah. bendy people hundred percent of the time. Does that look like picking up a 150 pound barbell? Not on your first day, right. maybe after some years, but we're going to start really low Mm -hmm. and go really slow. But mm -hmm. that's the the heavy loading of our tissues is what increases our tendon stiffness, actually changes our yes. collagen tissues to be stronger. And that's the thing that if we can dial it in and have the right dose and frequency and work on our recovery, mm -hmm. do it in a way we can recover from, that's the big, that's where the magic is in my view. Yeah. And I always tell, I teach a strength training class for bendy people called Bendy and Badass. I love that and so much. <laughs> great. You know, because I worked with a personal trainer. I still work with one. And yeah. we worked together for a year, kind of me as her guinea pig, me as both of our guinea pigs, essentially, because I was struggling so much with recovery. I just would be laid out. It looks yeah. like a fibromyalgia flare up, you know, mm -hmm. five days of just unbelievable fatigue and soreness when the workout felt fine, you know, so I had, right. she helped me kind of go to square one and just progress really, really slowly. And so we're using those same principles in this class. And I tell participants all the time, I'm not interested in how much you can do today in this class. I'm interested in us studying together. How much can you do today and still feel good tomorrow? And the next day we have to find that threshold and it's going to take some time to get there. That's the key. That way our progress is sustainable. Right. If we don't do that, then all we're doing is too much setback, too much setback. And we're not getting anywhere except frustrated, you know? Yeah. I see that a hundred percent. I work with a trainer as well. Both Shelby and I work with this trainer and it has been so helpful to have someone be essentially like a metronome of building mm -hmm. that, right? Exactly. It's that steady pace. It's that. And what you're going to be able to do is so much more than what you would have been before 
Mm-hmm. It's worth the money. It's worth the time to to invest in that because otherwise you're going to find yourself injured more than you are healthy. And exactly. And then people get discouraged and they yeah. say exercise makes things worse. And it's just because we haven't dialed in the right dose, the right frequency yet. Right. And we have to go so much farther back. We have to regress, I think, more than we realize. Mm-hmm really figure that out and be patient with our system. We cannot rush this, but it can be sustainable. And it's, you know, again, it's always person specific. And, you know, oftentimes I have to encourage people to get out of their habit of doing like three sets of 15 or whatever. We're doing low reps with a little heavier weight. That's generally what we're going for. And then in between sets, are we having our people with pots stand up, walk around to recover? No, we're going to lie down on the mat, maybe roll on some foam rollers or therapy oh, balls yeah. and like get really get out of gravity, mm-hmm. let the nervous system recover and, and rest longer than you're used to, and then go back and do your next set. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, this is so good. And I do think that the challenge with injury. And it doesn't even have to be injury with working out. could be life injury. It could be a flare. When you are going at the slow, steady pace of resistance training, the recovery is better overall. I feel like mm-hmm. I've recovered faster because I've been doing a lot of these things to mm-hmm. kind of be proactive instead of reactive in my body. So when I have injured myself, you know, like falling off a chairlift with skis, those death traps will get you every time. I'm just telling you people. <laughs> But my recovery, although long, wasn't maybe as long as it would have been. Yes, exactly. As we build capacity, I mean, we're building functional capacity. We're just right. training for life. We we have to train this body for daily life. Yeah. If we want to participate in daily life at a certain capacity, you know, and that's everyone's choice. Like, how do you want to participate? What matters to you? Mm-hmm. What is of value to you in your life? We have to really examine that because that's what we're training for. I'm training to keep up with my kids. That's like, I'm training to be regulated around my kids. <laughs> you know, like those are the things that, that's what matters to me. Yes. And, um, and being proactive, like you said, and not reactive is really important. Yeah. But as we build that capacity and we build resilience, mm-hmm. we will find that we recover more quickly. Mm-hmm. So that game of whack-a-mole where things are going to arise and we're going to try to whack them down. And then next week it's this other thing that is never going to stop. That's right. how it is. Right. But we get more efficient at whacking them down mm-hmm. at addressing them and we recover quicker over time. That's yeah. a really good sign. When you start to see that happen, you know, you're making some real functional progress. Yeah. I think one of the things that I've noticed though, is that the fatigue element, and you were talking about fatigue and, and how I tend to get more muscle fatigue and more body fatigue. And the more I overdo it just in life, it doesn't even have to be working out just in life. The more I overdo it, the more fatigued my body and my muscles feel. And then I start that compensation pattern again, because I'm fatigued. And I was telling my PT the other day, I said, it's almost like I go from ice to water. I go Mm -hmm. from this very structured person to just this melted person. And not necessarily in a good way, right? Because then I'm not holding myself together as well because I've overdone it. And I think we have to be aware of that. Yep. And you have to rest. You have to get out of gravity. 
gravity is a force and our passive connective tissues aren't, they're just not, you know, designed to withstand forces well for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. We have to get them some recoil. I mean, they they need to get out of gravity, recoil, get mm-hmm. some regulation of our blood pressure, heart rate, and get some blood flow to our brains and rest. And then we can go back at it. But that's part of pacing because mm-hmm. you're right. When we get fatigued is when we compensate and now everything is going to get worse. Same with just in a workout. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about life. Absolutely. That applies. Same applies in a workout. It might be that after five set of repetitions of an exercise, you're fatigued and you're compensating and we cannot go further. Stop right there. Right. We're fatigued more quickly than we realize because maybe we're not fully aware of all of our very clever compensations <laughs> that we've been doing, but, um, but we have to, to learn about that. And we know that bendy people produce like 30% or so less force output at baseline. We're just, our muscles mm. aren't as strong at baseline, but that doesn't mean they can't get stronger. It's mm-hmm. just, we have a deficit we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. I had this misconception when we were talking, I was talking to someone about EDS and they were like, you need to not lift so much. Your muscle mass can't handle that. Your connective tissue can't handle that. And I don't, think that that's necessarily true. I just think that you have to go at a smaller, you know, pace. And I think that almost scared me in a sense of like, I don't want to lift five pounds. I want to lift 155 pounds, but I can't do it overnight. And I don't want people to walk away scared to build muscle, to work on that connective tissue. I Mm -hmm. want people to feel empowered that you can do it. And knowing your body well enough and knowing how we respond to things, I think is going to be key to be able to do that. It's huge. I mean, it's everything. And you're exactly right. And that's part of that fear-based narrative building that so many people have been inundated with. They are afraid to do anything that's going to challenge them in any way. And so they get more and more deconditioned, which leads to more and more pain and loss of function. It is the wrong direction to go in. And it is not true that your muscles and connective tissue cannot handle loads. They absolutely can. We have to find out what it is. Maybe it's five pounds right now. Next year, maybe it's, we're just up to 20 pounds. I don't know, but we're going to progress. And what we know is that our tissues adapt they, this body is adaptable. The bendy body is adaptable. The bendy nervous mm-hmm. system is adaptable, but it's not happening overnight. It happens very slowly with progressive overload, progressive challenge that is appropriate mm-hmm. and that we can recover from. Those are the keys. Not easy to find that window, but that's what we're looking for. And then we know that our muscle does build mass. Mm-hmm. Our tendons do get stiffer. You know, we have a tiny, tiny bit of research on that and we we need lots more, but connective tissue is adaptable, but it, you know, this is one of the concepts and we hear about it a lot with bone. Mm -hmm. If you have osteoporosis, that bone needs to be stimulated mechanically in order to be more mineral dense, right? Like the weight bearing kind of exercise. Right. Same is true for our soft tissues. We just don't hear about that as much. They will not get stronger unless they are challenged. Mm -hmm. This is how it is. Is there benefit for people with chronic pain, chronic illness to do minimal amounts even? If you're feeling like you can't do anything because of your pain, your flare-ups or whatever, would minimal amounts of that movement really help bring the load of flare-up down? It can. It can because movement 
can have an anti-inflammatory effect. You know, like we know that moving our connective tissues can help them, you know, chemically change some chemistry locally that has an anti-inflammatory effect. Like there's some interesting research on stretching of connective tissue, for example, Mm -hmm. but also movement is a sensation input that competes with our other inputs. This is part Mm -hmm. of this whole pain gating concept that, you know, we've known about forever. Not all the inputs can make it through to your brain. So we want to ideally give the body some sensory input that is pleasurable, Mm -hmm. that competes with these other inputs. And movement can be that if the movement feels safe and feels pleasurable for that person, despite they're having a, a higher pain day, maybe it's in their bed doing some moving and breathing. Now we're, we're giving the body different inputs and that's really important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, just my personal specific condition responds really well to self-massage. So I spend a lot of time on the little therapy balls. If I'm having a high, you know, I struggle a lot with myofascial pain, widespread myofascial pain. If I'm having a higher pain day, I spend a lot of time on those balls. It's intense. It's some a big sensory input. Mm-hmm. I love it because afterwards I feel so much better. So that's just an example. I give my, it's something I do to myself. Yeah. It's self-inflicted sensory input, you know, that, that I interpret as pleasurable. Right. We have to find what that is for ourselves and, and use those tools. Yeah. Oh, this is all so good. I could probably go on for hours with you. I'm really trying to whittle it down here, but I do have a lot of questions but we don't have time for that today. So, <laughs> but it's just so good. It's so thought provoking. And I think that it adds another piece of golden nugget to those of us who are bendy, who have endometriosis, who have all of these other things that we just didn't really put together. And I know that we've talked about the yarn and putting everything together. I mean, it's addressing every little facet of that ball of yarn that will really help us, I think, understand our bodies and how to better take care of our bodies and our minds. It's so important. I'm just, my mind is so blown right now. I'm just telling you that right now. It's so blown right now. I'm so glad that, you know, it's good food for thought and, and I hope it helps your listeners feel less alone, feel a little bit more seen and validated. And, you know, there's grief in all of this. Of course, anytime you have a chronic condition, there's grief, but there's also hopefully some relief that comes with knowing that you're not alone Mm -hmm. and that it makes a little bit of sense and that there are some things we can slowly work towards over time to improve our quality of life. Yeah. Absolutely. And I do think that it's important for us to recognize that grief and recognize Mm -hmm. that this is, we're a work in progress and it's okay to grieve that. It's okay to grieve that you may not always feel or ever feel 100%, but there's Mm -hmm. ways to get closer to that 100% to filling that cup. And just the fact that it's not just our bodies, it's the way that our brain is created. And we, we have to recognize both. It's okay to grieve that. Exactly. It's, it's a necessary part of the process. I think it's, it's how we get to a place of acceptance or some level of acceptance and ultimately from their empowerment. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's very important. It is very important. We'll have to um, have a part two conversation someday, maybe. Oh, (laughs) 
A hundred thousand percent. I know you can't get to that percentage, but (laughs) that's an unrealistic percentage. But I know that from talking to so many different people, there were so many questions that came up. So if any of the listeners have a question, go ahead and either message me or you can message Libby. Libby, what's your Instagram and a way to kind of get a hold of you for that? Instagram is Libby Hinesley PT. Mm-hmm. And my email address is Libby Hinesley at Gmail. But Instagram is where I'm most active. I'm starting to get a little active on TikTok where I am Bendy PT, but I'm just barely starting. It's like a whole, <laughs> it's like a whole new frontier. <laughs> You're better than me. <laughs> I have I have one video. Okay. So it's, it's like, but I have plans, you know, right. to try to be on there. So yeah, Libby Hinesley PT. I'd love to you know, entertain other questions. And if it makes sense to have a part two, we can always talk about that down the road. And then Libby also has authored a book called Yoga with Bindi People. So this may be a benefit for people that have been really wanting to research this more. And honestly, anyone I feel like could read Yeah, that. Yoga for Bindi People. Yeah, you can, it's orderable um, at your favorite independent bookseller. Of course, you can get it on Amazon. You can get order it from Barnes and Noble. There's ebook. There's also an audio book. And I do think it's appropriate for anybody you can, you can apply the the principles in it that are yoga specific. You can apply those to any movement modality. And it has a lot of good background on the front end about hypermobility syndromes. Yeah. And then you're mm-hmm. also doing courses. Yeah. So I'm actually about to launch a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I want to maybe interview you about endometriosis. Any day. Actually. Any um, day. It's called Zebra Talks. And it's all about, you know, all things hypermobility. So that'll be coming out like any week. I'm excited about that. And I'm also about to launch an online community for Bendy people called the Hypermobility Hub. And that'll be in the next couple months, probably, where we'll have like a couple different levels of membership, but we're going to provide live and recorded classes for people awesome. with these conditions. So a gentle yoga class, a basic resistance class, and a nervous system regulation focused class. Oh, that's incredible. That's incredible. The work you're doing is so necessary and gives people in this space a voice. And I just appreciate everything that you're doing, all the work you're doing. You work, I'm sure, tirelessly, not only because you're a mom, but because you're doing all this other work of really advocacy for Mm -hmm. those of us who are hypermobile, bendy, who have all these different challenges that we're faced with. And so I just, I really want to just take a second and honor you for doing all the work that you're doing and feeling that that. space because we need more people like you. And I just appreciate you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I want people to have an easier time with these conditions. We, it's just absurd. It's absurd and we have to do better. And so, yeah, if I can make a dent in that, I am happy to do so. And welcome to the endometriosis world. (laughs) 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 Thank you, Libby, so much for taking the time and for coming on today. And you are welcome back any day of the week. I will have you anytime. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. It's an honor to be here. And I hope some listeners find it helpful too. Oh, I absolutely think they will. I absolutely think they will. Until next time, everyone, continue advocating for you and for those that you love.